Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in Southeast Asia, with the capital Phnom Penh, a population of 17 million, and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Cambodia. In 1992, the United Nations undertook an administrative role in Cambodia that sought to install peace to a country that had been racked by violence in the previous few decades. It also tried to promote democracy and hold regular free and fair elections. Whilst the country remains at peace to this day, the transition to full democracy has been less steady. The country's ruler in 1992, Hun Sen, still rules the country today and is the world's longest-serving prime minister, at 37 years and counting. Whilst the country still holds regular elections, Hun Sen has clamped down on free speech and hobbles the opposition through brutal tactics. But how did Cambodia get to this place? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Cambodia, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Peter Manning of Bath University, who has written extensively on Cambodia. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Peter, could you just start by telling us a bit about Cambodia before the French arrive in the 19th century? Because the country has quite a long history, as I'm sure anyone who's been to the world-famous Angkor Wat can attest. And before the French involvement in Cambodia, Cambodia was very much a, a soft state, you'd describe it as. What do you mean by that? By that, I mean that it had quite poorly defined borders and it was quite vulnerable really to what was going on with its two neighbours, the Thai Empire and the Vietnamese Empire as well. Right, okay. And it's really in that context that we're talking in the 19th century right now that, that Cambodia became a French protectorate. That was 1863, and that's partly as a response to this sort of precariousness, I suppose, between these two quite expansionist um, neighbouring powers. Interesting. So the country is kind of fearful of its neighbours, and almost as a buffer against this, it becomes part of French Indochina. What are the consequences of this? I suppose the consequences of French rule or some of the, you know, the, the key implications, I suppose, of, of what the French were doing there. You know, the, the first I'd really want to highlight would be the ways that the French really amplified an awareness of Cambodia's former glories, right? The glories of the, the Angkorian empires. The French were able to sort of play to this sense of former glory to partly legitimate the, the work that they were doing there and their, their rule there. And I think that's important to highlight because that sense of sort of former grandeur and former glory and, and a loss of former status and prestige is really central to a lot of Cambodian nationalisms that followed French colonial rule in Cambodia and are really still quite present to this day. Right. I think that's such an interesting point to pull out because whilst Cambodia is relatively small now, in the 13th century, it was the centre of quite a significant empire that covered much of Southeast Asia. How else did French rule impact the country? I think the second thing I'd highlight really would be that French rule, I think in a lot of histories, it's been treated as, as quite a sort of sanguine period in the sense that, you know, the experience of political life was quite quiet. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. You know, the French, any colonial system is going to be very extractive and, and quite violent. And Cambodia is not different in that respect. What are some examples of this? You know, so the French tax regime, for example, was very, very extractive and very harsh. There was a very high tax rate in that respect. And this fermented quite a lot of unrest in, among the, the rural poor. So, so, you know, you had quite a lot of protest even in the 19th century, but then in the early 20th century, really significant moments. 1916, for example, there were huge protests against, against the French tax system. And that led to violence against, by, by the peasantry, essentially, against administrative centres in the provinces. But also, actually, and this is notable, 
against uh, other ethnic minorities. So, for example, the Vietnamese um, and the Chinese. So you had the sort of seeds of of a sort of nationalist and what became eventually an independence movement even back then. Yeah, right. So then how does the country eventually achieve independence? So a really interesting question. So the transition to independence, I suppose, you know, starts in, in the 1930s and 40s, where you do get a more clearly defined anti-colonial independence movement. And, and what's interesting about that is that, again, it's occurring in places that are away from the, the elites, I suppose. And it's the best way of describing it. It's not a sort of monarchy-led, you know, revolt against the French. It's very much something that's grounded in the grievances of the rural poor, or at least, or at least sensitive to those. And then obviously you have World War Two, and after the end of World War Two and the Japanese occupation, the French try to reimpose colonial rule. And this provokes armed resistance. Yeah, of course. So the Japanese occupy the country for much of World War II, but after the war, the French come back in to try and re-establish control. But the local population have kind of had enough of being ruled by others at this point, so they resist. How does this evolve? This provokes what was quite a loose grouping, I suppose, of you know independence factions, but one of those independence factions was communist. This umbrella, I suppose, organisation is the, the Khmer Isarak, which just means the independent Khmers. You know, a strand of that was the a Vietnamese-sponsored Khmer Communist Party, the Khmer People's Revolutionary Party. And they actually came to dominate the, the Khmer Isarak movement. Interesting. So it's this mix of nationalists and communists that push for and achieve independence in 1954. But then the monarchy assumes control again and tries to maintain a neutral peace between the factions, though he himself is guilty of a lot of repression as well. But this is all going on in the much wider context of the Cold War and the escalating Vietnam War next door. How does this impact the country? So the Vietnam War has a huge, huge bearing on Cambodian politics and you know, the direction of travel for Cambodia more broadly. So when the US involvement in Vietnam is really escalating, so we're talking 1964, 1965, this idea that Cambodia could remain neutral falls apart really quickly. You know, and Cambodia is increasingly sucked into giant regional conflict. So so I suppose the first thing to highlight there would be that, you know, Vietnamese communist forces are increasingly using Cambodian territory to launch attacks into South South Vietnam, that's through the late 1960s. And in turn, US and South Vietnamese forces would would essentially sort of disregard the territorial integrity of Cambodia, right? And they would launch attacks into the Cambodian interior. And then actually from 1969, this is really pivotal, Nixon orders carpet bombing of the Cambodian interior too. And and between that, in those years, up to the, the, the ascent to power of the Khmer Rouge, which is 1975, it's a few years later, between 1969 and 1973, hundreds of thousands of Cambodian civilians are killed by US carpet bombing raids in the countryside. And, and this has a huge, huge sort of effect on galvanising popular support for, for the communist movement, basically. Of course. I think a lot of people don't realise quite how impacted by the Vietnam War Cambodia was. But this indiscriminate bombing has a huge effect and leads to the rise of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So Sihanouk, the, the king, he was overthrown in 1970 in a US-backed military coup which will probably sound familiar to other countries that you might have covered on this podcast. And then from exile in Beijing, Sihanouk throws his lot in with the Khmer Rouge and he backs the communist insurgency, essentially. Okay, so that's how they eventually take power. And this leads to a huge devastation and the deaths of millions of people. But they're only actually in power for a few years. How does this happen? Yeah, it's, so it's, I mean, it's three years, eight months and 20 days, which, I mean, you're absolutely right, is a very short period. Wow, that's such a short period. 
So on the one hand, yes, you know, you have the abolition of money, for example. You know, you have this commitment to absolute self-sufficiency, that the economy would be geared up exclusively around an agrarian model and cooperatives essentially built around rice production and, and nothing more. And, and in that respect, you know, this sort of repudiation of all of the institutions of capitalism, essentially, you know, banks, you know, the previous regime in particular, anybody associated with the previous regime that was thought to be or thought to have a relationship to the imperial interests of the US, for example, those people were, were vulnerable. They were suspected and likely to be eliminated. Right. So they attempted to maintain control by killing off anyone that could potentially even threaten them. And then they also caused mass starvation by turning the country's entire economic system on its head. Now, this is important to detail because in that three years, eight months, 20 days, you know, 1.7 million Cambodians died. They died of hunger. They died of disease. They, they were executed. And, and those executions included members of the former regime, included civil servants, included intellectuals. Anybody that was considered bourgeois or, or foreign, essentially, was likely at risk. After immediately taking power in 1975, the towns and cities were evacuated. You know, the population were transferred wholesale to these cooperatives in the, in the countryside. And you had quite a stark enactment of a distinction between those who were considered old people, you know, the rural poor, and those who had come from the cities and were now working in the countryside who were described as the new people. And it's, you know, this economic model was obviously a disaster. As I said, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, they died of starvation and, and disease. Wow. That's just unimaginable. But it also seems that this rapid destruction also leads to a rapid collapse as well. And of course, the country's relationship with Vietnam as well. The Khmer Rouge were increasingly preoccupied with their relationship to Vietnam. And this should ring bells from what we were saying earlier on about nationalist anxieties about the relationship with what was perceived as the territorially expansionist Vietnamese neighbour. So Khmer Rouge troops were increasingly launching border raids across into Vietnamese territory. And actually in the eastern zones of the Khmer Rouge regional apparatus, you increasingly saw purges of, of Khmer Rouge members who were suspected of, of Vietnamese sympathies. They were described as you know, Khmer bodies with Vietnamese minds. And so at Christmas 1978, the Vietnamese essentially have had enough of this and they launched an intervention and they capture Phnom Penh with the assistance of sort of rebel Khmer Rouge forces, I suppose, on January the 7th, 1979. Then Cambodia actually comes under Vietnamese occupation for 10 years, right? I sort of hesitate from using the term occupation somewhat, you know, because there's such a stark division today in terms of the politics of whether this gets described as either an occupation or as a, as a liberation, essentially. You, you know, so, so the current government would always describe it as a liberation. The, the opposition would always describe it as an occupation. So I sort of tend to in my writing on this, describe it as an intervention, which is you know, maybe somewhere in the middle. Yeah, good compromise. The Vietnamese presence is deeply unpopular with the Cambodian people. You know, on the one hand, people were very relieved that the Khmer Rouge had gone and it was an end of a regime that was, was genocidal. But the presence of Vietnamese troops is a huge source of grievance as well. And that presence of Vietnamese troops actually helps galvanise support in turn again for the Khmer Rouge, who are able to recruit members from the refugee camps that, that you know, filling up along the, the Thai border. And that fuels this insurgency that runs throughout the 1980s. And in this period, you know, the Khmer Rouge continue to you know, massacre civilians. They continue to continue to attack Vietnamese communities in particular, the Vietnamese minorities in Cambodia. But the People's Republic of Kampuchea, the, the government, 
also have an appalling human rights record throughout this period. You know, forced conscription, having to work in absolutely abject, dangerous, hazardous conditions, you know, arbitrary arrest and detention of any any political dissent or political opposition. You know, all sides in this conflict are using UXO and landmines, and you know, and they're still claiming lives in Cambodia to this day. Wow, that's horrendous. So how does this awful period come to an end in the late 1980s? It's in this moment that the, the leadership of the People's Republic of Kampuchea, who was then, um, it was then led by Hun Sen, who's the current prime minister to this day, begins to initiate a negotiation with Sihanouk, the former king. And this ultimately leads to the Paris Peace Agreements of 1991. And this, this mandated a UN peacekeeping presence in Cambodia in the early 1990s, from 92 to 93. And, and the mandate was to oversee Cambodia's first democratic elections, which they did. And these were won in 1993, ultimately by the royalists, but by root of slightly sort of contrived and, let's say, questionable set of political negotiations that the CPP, the Cambodian People's Party, who was the successor of the 1980s government, the People's Republic of Kampuchea, they managed to sort of cling on. And Hun Sen stays on as a co-prime minister in the early, in the early 1990s. And then a few years later, Pol Pot dies as well, finalising the end to the Khmer Rouge. But despite the relative peace since then, Hun Sen has held on to and consolidated his power in the country and has pretty much formed a one-party state, right? I mean, Cambodia is, it is often described as a one-party state, and it, I mean, it de facto is, you know, it's dominated by the Cambodian People's Party and the rule of Hun Sen. I mean, I suppose up to, up to you know, there's, there's national elections every five years, and the last two are really significant in that respect. You know, 2013 was probably the first moment at which there was a genuine question mark over whether, you know, the CPP would, would suffer a defeat. And, and I think the CPP have reacted quite, quite energetically, let's say, in response to that and in quite a sort of authoritarian and draconian way. I mean, even before that, up to 2013, yeah, the elections were, you know, they were they were procedurally free and fair. I guess you'd say, you know, there, there were, you know, the election monitors and observers would say that these these were elections broadly conducted in in free and fair circumstances. You know, so they were procedurally sort of relatively transparent. But you know, the the print and the broadcast media is entirely owned by, almost entirely owned by the the CPP. You know, and yeah, you know, this the broader sort of political climate and context where the opposition has always, to some degree, felt vulnerable to harassment or arbitrary detention or occasionally also targeted assassination to, you know, it's meant that it's not really meaningfully democratic in any way. I mean, you know, the media point, I think, is is important because that broadly plays such an important role in shaping the sort of public imagination on what's, what's politically feasible and what's not. Yeah, right. So the ruling party and Hun Sen basically dominates the political scene by consolidating media and intimidating opposition. So appearing democratic, but not really on the ground. Thanks for bringing us up to date with the country. Before we let you go, though, could you just chat to us about a holiday, festival or event that's unique to Cambodia? Yeah, so I think the one I'd highlight would be, um, it's called Om Tuk, and and that's, it means the water festival, essentially. And that's held in Cambodia in late October or early November. And this is important for a couple of reasons. It's meant to mark the end of the rainy season. So it's got sort of historical and cultural significance, I suppose, in the way that you know, the monsoon and the rainy season dictates a lot of agricultural practice and farming practice. But it's also meant to mark the reversal of the flow of the Tonle Sap River, which you know, is a tributary onto the Mekong. 
but also actually for periods flows back up into into the Tonle Sap Lake, which is geographically really central in in Cambodia. So that the Tonle Sap sort of fills the Tonle Sap Lake on the basis of essentially the rainy season, and this is yeah the water festival marks that turning point where the flow essentially changes direction. Um, so it's quite a sort of unique geography in that respect. So I suppose for the celebrations, what does it involve? It, you know, it, on the riverfront in Phnom Penh, but often actually at the temples at Angkor as well, you'd see a lot of boat races. Traditionally, on the first day, you would actually have the, the royal family watching as well, the, a royal boat race. And, you know, the races are really dramatic and really fun if anybody gets a chance to, to visit Cambodia at that, that time. And actually, you know, the, I think the thing that's really nice about this is actually the you know, just the mass participation, you get millions of people coming to Phnom Penh or to Siem Reap from the provinces, you know, it's a huge influx of the rural population who don't normally otherwise or may not otherwise go to the city so much. And yeah, there's a lot of partying and concerts and you know, music and everyone gets to eat really well. And yeah, so it's a real sort of festival. Sounds awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Great. All right. Thanks. Cheers. I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Dr. Peter Manning. Join us next time where we'll be discussing the West African nation of Cameroon, which has the rare history of being colonized by multiple European powers. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at How My Country Works for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Cambodia or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Luke Trubert. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.